I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. And I'm Anna Greta Hunter. And so welcome, listeners, to the third episode of Policy Forum Pod for 2023. On today's pod, we're going to weave together a number of different uh, themes that have emerged over the last few years. And particularly, we're going to talk about the health of uh, populations around the world. Much remarkable research and clinical work is done around our world to reduce ill health, disease and premature death. Most of this research and investment is directed at the biomedical sciences with drugs, devices, tests and procedures aimed at improving quality of life and life expectancy, usually after the condition's diagnosed and beginning to cause some harm. But this biomedical model does not routinely account for the upstream drivers of so many of our common illnesses and diseases, drivers such as housing, employment, education, relationships and happiness, the social determinants of health, and the crucial environmental elements that surround and sustain us, the water, the air, the food that we need to survive. Approaching population health from a perspective beyond the biomedical core, considering the social and environmental factors that are needed for our well-being, usually provides remarkable opportunities to improve the health for so many people. And it's this system approach to healthcare that we're going to discuss further today with our wonderful guest, who I'm sure is well known to many of our listeners, Professor Sharon Friel from ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. Sharon and her colleagues have recently published a remarkable series of papers on the commercial determinants of health in The Lancet, and those papers are definitely worth a read. With one third of global deaths already attributable to a combination of climate change, the non-communicable disease epidemic, and just four industries, tobacco, ultra-processed food, fossil fuels and alcohol, the importance of this analysis can't be overstated. As Sharon says in her paper, the most basic public health question is not whether the world has the resources or the will to take such actions, but whether humanity can survive if society fails to make this effort. Sharon, it is a delight to have you back on Policy Forum Pod. Welcome and congratulations on this groundbreaking work. I wonder if you could begin by just introducing yourself to those members of our audience who haven't previously heard you on the pod and 
enjoyed your wonderful accent, which Anna Greta and I always love listening to. Thank you. Well, lovely to join you again on the, the policy forum. It's always a fantastic, always a fantastic series. Um, so, yeah, so I'm Sharon Friel. I'm Professor of Health Equity at the Australian National University. Um, I do a lot of work looking at that intersection between uh, social, commercial, political and environmental factors that contribute to poor health, good health, and but particularly uh, what it means for health inequities and what does policy and governance look like that can make all of that better. And of course, Sharon, you are currently an ARC Laureate Fellow uh, with the Planetary Health Equity Hothouse, which is one of the best named research groups that I've heard of. Um, and it's a fantastic project that's underway here at ANU. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the commercial determinants of health. Um, and I'd love if you could perhaps set the scene for today's discussion by telling us what are the commercial determinants of health? Where did this concept originate from? What does it mean? And how did you approach it for this Lancet series? Thanks, Anna Greta. So, yeah, so the commercial, the, well, the way we describe the commercial determinants of health in the Lancet series, which is a three paper series in the Lancet Journal. So the way we describe the commercial determinants of health is the systems, the practices and the pathways through which commercial actors drive health and equity. And that's really, it's an evolution of this field or subfield uh, the commercial determinants of health subfield in public health. We've spoken about the social determinants of health for a number of years, and that's tended to be speaking about, uh, I think you mentioned that at the start, Anagata, you know, there's the range of whether it's housing or employment or you know, a range of public policy areas. But what was often left out of that was the yeah the commercial actors in the mix there, and so the way the the field started to emerge was looking at products, and you mentioned Sharon we describe in the papers that there's four uh, four industries and their products that are contributing to a third um, of global um, deaths and that was around tobacco, alcohol, ultra-processed foods and fossil fuels and so for many years the work, it wasn't always called the commercial attempts of health but it was about these products or these industries but what we've said in the papers is they are very important but it's it's much much worse than that. <laughs> it's all the the, the wider systems uh, in which these entities are located that are really reinforcing, we describe it as a pathological system that's causing these, these problems. Um, so, yeah, so it's really just trying to shine a light on the commercial side of things, not just the, the broader social uh, side. Sharon, it's... <laughs> Those figures that you refer to of a third of deaths coming from or being in some way related to those four industries, 
it's just shocking. <laughs> like it is so confronting to hear that. And I wonder if we could just kind of unpack that a little bit more and and ask you to talk a bit more about broadly the impacts that the social determinants of health have on the health of our populations in Australia regionally and, and at a global scale. It's confronting enough to hear about those those deaths that you talk about, but presumably there are a very broad range of, of health issues that are impacted if we have that death at that scale. Yeah, so it plays out in so many different ways. Um, so these industries, these four industries, so tobacco, alcohol, ultra-processed foods and fossil fuels. So probably listeners will be aware of you know the health harms that come from tobacco for example and more recently and certainly in Australia but globally the discussions around uh, vaping as well uh, but so the um, tobacco issues to do with um, cancers to do with uh, um, cardiovascular uh, diseases you know so it's a broad range of health conditions just associated uh, with tobacco and tobacco products. You've also got the worker exposure to secondhand tobacco as well. So it takes you right into the occupational health and safety area too. Alcohol uh, related harm plays out in many, many ways. And again, we think about alcohol, you know, is it about cirrhosis of the liver, you know, in that very intense, very acute way. But alcohol permeates through our lives and relates to the wider uh, determinants of health in a number of ways. One, it's highly correlated with poor mental health uh, as well. It's highly correlated with uh, domestic violence. It's highly correlated with wider um, societal uh, unrest and, and criminal, criminal behaviour. Um, it's widely, um, or not widely, it's uh, associated, alcohol, uh, alcohol-related um, harm uh, associated with all sorts of other uh, harmful, health-harming behaviours. So it's interconnected with tobacco, it's interconnected with um, unhealthy eating and just sort of the wider um, ways of, of being. Um, highly correlated with uh, homelessness as well. Uh, these are all these sort of other um, aspects of society that we know are already bad for people's health. Um, fossil fuels, you know, to do with uh, air pollution, to do with harm to climate change and how that feeds back into poor health. Um, so I suppose what I'm trying to point towards is it's not just about what we put in our mouth, what we drink, how we drink it, how we smoke it, how we uh, how we eat, how we consume. It, in these industries and their products are so intertwined with our everyday lives and highly, highly unequally distributed. That's the other thing as well. Um, 
So yeah, so maybe we can come back to to some of those intersections because that goes to this sort of bigger question of the systems in which these industries are positioned and how they create and utilize those systems. Sharon, we, we do want to come to those systems and kind of pull all of this apart a, a little more, but I just had a, a question that I, I wanted to ask of you, and that was around vaping. And you mentioned vaping in, in that kind of that that list that you gave of, of the very confronting things that impact on, on our health. And one of the things that I've noticed, um, and I think that we're all aware of, is with the research that I do with, with teenagers is just how widespread vaping is. Um, it's a very social thing for young people and it's also very clearly marketed at young people in terms of the um, the, the flavours that are there, the packaging that's there and, and the way the, that, that product has, has been developed and, and marketed. And I'm wondering, Sharon, does the, there's been some success around tobacco control through the Framework Convention, for example, do things like that apply to vaping or are we in kind of completely new territory when we have a new product like vaping come onto the scene? Yes, and it, it varies. It depends. Is there tobacco, uh, it, sorry, is there nicotine in the product or because there's a variety of different products there very deliberately so um so one, I should say, Australia has been a world first uh, when it comes to the control of these products uh, in that they're uh, controlled through our regulator, the TGA, and they're only available through prescription. That's a world first. So that's one strong, but relatively strong regulatory uh, approach that we're taking in Australia. That's not the case in, in other places around the world. Um, but it does require, in terms of um, alcohol, alcohol, in terms of vaping uh, regulation, it requires a new regulatory framework. And uh, the, the Australian government is on it. They're absolutely aware of that and working uh, to introduce uh, a fit for purpose regulatory approach. Uh, to, to when it comes to, to vaping because the FCTC um, doesn't cover it in the way that it needs to to cover it. Sharon, this systems approach is really interesting in that you can see the intersections across a wide range of disease driven by the commercial determinants of health uh, and the influence of, of variables like tobacco and alcohol, I think are really good examples where they have this heterogeneous impact across a range of different elements of our health from the physical to the mental health. I'd just like to broaden the conversation out to thinking about planetary health. And of course, in one of my very favourite books, your book, The Climate Change and the People's Health, you made the compelling case for that dual harm of a consumptogenic system impacting on both human and planetary health. Are these relationships apparent using the commercial determinants of health model? Is this an important part of the, the same analysis? Totally. Uh, so the, the commercial determinants, the commercial entities are major major drivers of and beneficiaries of that uh, global consumptogenic system. Um, and just in case anybody doesn't know what the consumptogenic system is, um, 
it's that so it is this web of of institutions of actors of policies of commercial uh, practices and of norms institutional and social norms that really value incentivize reward the production and consumption of fossil fuel reliant goods and services which we know are incredibly harmful for the environment and are often incredibly harmful for human health and are very unequally uh, valued and distributed. So it gives you this intersection with climate change inequalities and, and poor health as the, sort of the outcomes. So yeah, if we're going to do anything about uh, planetary health, planetary health inequities, we have to do something about the commercial determinants of health. Mm. Sharon, this has been an extraordinary opening discussion to explain this framework around the commercial determinants of health. It's extraordinary research. We're going to take a brief break here and come back with more questions in a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Professor Sharon Friel talking about the commercial determinants of health and the ways in which market fundamentalism and ever-increasing marketization has created a pathological system that's harming both human health and planetary health. Sharon, you point out the ways in which market fundamentalism has created and continues to perpetuate deep inequity. And when I read your work, I, I can't help but reflecting on the work of people like Ben Fine and Lena Levinas, who point out the ways in which social policy has become financialized. And they talk about the ways in which people's income, including income through welfare, has been, been transformed into assets that can be placed at the disposal of the financial sector. And as a result, people become not only dependent on but indebted to that financial sector, particularly through credit. And debts of despair are, are just one outcome of this, one horrifying outcome. And so I think, you know, we see this marketization across all aspects of our society and, and the way in which it impacts on social policy, on health policy, on our health. And marketization has been incredibly successful and profitable for some, but devastating for others. Sharon, I wonder if you could begin to share with us a vision of what alternative business models might look like where we begin to move away 
from this market fundamentalism that really shapes our world currently? Yeah, well, so can I just sort of um, tease apart just a little bit of what you've just said there, Sharon, because I think it's it's vitally important because what, what you've pointed towards is this, you know, the world, this kind of the 20th century capitalism was all about the movement of goods and services. It was we identified a firm, we identified a product, and we saw you know, whether that was good or bad for society writ large. And so we, and certainly in the commercial determinants of health world, we've spent a lot of time looking at the sort of the corporate, the corporations and their practices and what that has meant, you know, whether that was uh, corporate social responsibility or marketing or um, their supply chains and all of that still matters. But what you've just highlighted is 21st century capitalism is no longer really about that because it's now about, and this is some of the work by a colleague here, uh, Susan Sell, and, and others around the world who have done this lovely work saying, actually, the profits are now made through the intangibles, not the tangible products, it's the intangibles. And intangibles relates to two things. One, it's intellectual property rights. So you make the money through intellectual property and or it's through financialization, which is what you were speaking about uh, there. And so as capitalism has become much more about the financialization of the global economy, we see that the people really who are setting the rules of the game, who are controlling the narrative, who are setting and controlling the narrative, are are the financial actors. So it is the institutional investors, it's the, the investment banks, it's the, um, the private equity people, it's the money managers. They're the ones who are buying up the shares, who are uh, setting the direction. They're the ones who vote because they're the shareholders in the companies, they're setting the direction for these companies. So that really matters. So in terms of what does an alternative start to look like, I would say we've absolutely got to start thinking about how the finance system writ large can be encouraged, incentivized, regulated, to consider social environmental uh, factors right up there. And I'll come back to what that might look like in a wee second. But the other part of it, which you spoke about, Sharon, was the financialization of everyday life. And that is just, we live on credit. We, with the, the, the shrinking of government revenue, with the shrinking of the welfare state around the world, the way that society sort of recalibrates when there's much greater credit availability, whether that's through mortgages, whether it's through credit cards, whether it's through extortionate loans from these private money lenders, then people take 
credit. And that's okay if you've already got money. And that's why, you know, all of the the, the wealthy do really well do well out of this financialization paradigm. But those who are not already wealthy do really badly uh, out of this. And we've we've just done an analysis here in Australia which has shown exactly exactly that. So financialization there's there's lots of different tentacles of that um, that's coming through the world of commerce and just coming through the world of of social welfare. So Sharon, you're really highlighting the challenges that were within our financial system uh, as it's evolved in the last couple of decades that it perhaps hasn't kept up with the evolution of a capitalist system as it stands today. Global regulatory frameworks that are surround health and human rights and equity, they're often criticised for having inadequate enforcement mechanisms. But do we have a global regulatory framework that's in place that can be harnessed, do you think, for the meaningful, lasting change uh, of the challenge of these commercial determinants of health? I think we've got places that we can learn from. I don't. We have. I, we don't have a silver bullet. I should say, and we say that in the papers. There is no silver bullet here. It's a, a multiple. I speak about sort of um, model mongering. It's just multiple approaches. But I think we've got glimmers of pieces. So there's um, at the global level there is the discussion and the actually the adoption by some of the countries, some of the high income countries, for a global tax system. Now it's very it's been criticized, absolutely, but it's the start of something. So if we had a global tax system in place, which is about taxing these commercial uh, big corporations doing that properly or, or doing it, first of all, would be a, a great thing. Um, <laughs> so there's the start of that. Um, there are also the lessons from the Framework Convention of Tobacco Control that's shown how something like a legally binding uh, international treaty can be a very effective uh, regulatory mechanism, as we've seen with tobacco control. We also see it with some of the climate change, you know, with the climate change uh, treaties as well through the UNFCCC, with all its problems, with all its problems. Uh, but there's some bones of a regulatory, uh, an international regulatory mechanism. What we absolutely don't have, though, is in that financialization world. Um, and there's a lot of discussion that happens around, well, should we be bringing health into ESG, you know, the environment, social and governance indicators that are used across the business world, across the finance world, um, where companies, where investors, where shareholders look at the ESG indicators. Some people think that Health and we speak about that in the Lancet series. Yeah, that's one. Uh, currently, that's a voluntary uh, regulatory mechanism. Um, we'll see whether that's just going to simply be a health washing in the way that it's been a green washing for some of the the companies. But it's there. It's trying to make use uh, of of what exists. So um, I think there needs to be some strategic thinking about a global 
uh, an international regulatory mechanism that addresses planetary health equity. Sharon, you you mentioned in in your response there the the potential role that taxation and and perhaps the redistribution that can come from taxation might play in addressing some of these issues. And you you talk in the article particularly um, around health, social and environmental externalities might be costed and into taxation formulas. I, I wonder if you'd like to just talk a little bit more on on what that might might look like. Um, is it possible here, do you think, to have a genuinely global tax and how might that be managed? Or is this something that we need to see happening more at, at national levels? Um, I'd, I'd love to hear your reflections on that might look like what that might look like and what the outcomes might be if we could get those taxation mechanisms right. So, yeah, so I think there's two parts to that. And actually, that would be a lovely discussion to have with some of our tax uh, policy colleagues, wouldn't it? But um, I think there's two parts to that. At that global level, the idea of the global tax is to try and um, deal with the tax avoidance that these big transnational corporations, uh, the, the practices, their behaviours that allow them quite legally allow them to avoid paying tax. And so the discussion that's going on about this global tax is to address that issue. Building in those externalities. So at the moment, these companies behave in the way that they behave, either in Australia or within any sort of national boundaries. They behave in the way that they behave. And the environmental the health and the social impacts that they are having are not paid for by those companies. They're paid for out of the public purse. So that's what those external um, externalities are referring to. And so imagine if in Australia, or any country, but imagine if Australia had a taxation formula for the those companies here that said, you will pay this amount of tax that's going to capture those externalities. And so they would be paying a lot more tax, but it means that we have that money then in the government revenue to mitigate some of those social health and environmental harms that have been caused by those private uh, companies and interests. You can imagine the companies don't like that idea, but... Um. But Sharon, there there is you know a, a kind of a growing lobby, I think, for a different way of approaching taxation, and and of course Oxfam has been at the forefront um, of some of that campaigning around thinking quite differently about about taxation, not just within countries but globally. So perhaps we are starting to see the the beginnings of a shift, or at least genuine demands for a shift in the way we think about um, who pays for what and how we ensure equity through that process. Yeah, and, you know, all of that has, we've, the shifts, I think you're correct in the the shifts that we're starting to see, and that I think has become um, much more urgent and accepted as being much more urgent because there are this, this exponential growth, in particularly in the environmental harms that are being observed everywhere around the world um, and 
groups like Oxfam and others have done such a brilliant job of shining the spotlight on the growing wealth inequities that are associated with all of this. And so just this constant spotlighting of the harms, the inequities, um, and with the growing, um, I would say the growing social norms. And we see that in there's a generational shift among investors that, that you are much the younger generation of investors are saying, no, we've got to really think about ethical investment or sustainable business models, which is what we write about in the paper. Um, so I think, yeah, we're seeing uh, a growth of that happening. Uh, and so, so the, the big um, question or, or challenge for us uh, broadly across society is how to amplify that in a, in a timely fashion. Sharon, you've been talking a bit about whether health and health equity should be an ESG goal and a, and a particularly a driver around policy changes globally and regionally. I've often wondered why health or well-being more broadly aren't the main drivers for policy, particularly around climate change. Um, and I'm sure many people are joining the dots here on some of the social and commercial determinants and the chronic diseases that so many of us will experience in our lives, in our families' lives, and in our population health and well-being. I wonder, if we found an effective model to address the commercial determinants of health, I wonder how healthy our society could be. And I wonder, as we draw today's conversation toward its close, can you offer us a glimpse of just how powerful a change might be for the health and well-being of our population? So if we had uh, a multi-level, multi-pronged response to the beast that is the commercial determinants of health, we would immediately save a third of those global deaths. So that in and of itself. We would also, because what those figures don't also show is the way in which those industries indirectly and the other industries that was only four industries but how these um, industries and their practices indirectly contribute to health and health inequities through working conditions um, through income inequality through social um, disconnection through changes to our uh, lived environment to um, infrastructure, housing and so on. So we would get an additional number of uh, uh, rates of both morbidity and death rates saved from that. Um, so I don't have a I don't have a concrete number, but immediately you can start to see that we're talking somewhere around about half of the global deaths. I would be I would put my neck on the line and say it would be way above half of global deaths. Um, and then the idea of keeping us well and keeping us healthy, just think. You know, so the other side of it, of course, is not all commercial entities are harmful. There's some marvellous things that have arisen through um, commerce 
And what it is, of course, is we need the rules of the game put in place to make sure that those types of um, commercial entities absolutely flourish so that they keep as well. I don't mean commodifying our health and wellness. I think mean, you know, we don't need more about the wellness industry at all. It's about just the broader uh, way of society. So I'm going to put my neck out and say well above half of the global burden of disease would be eliminated. Yeah, that's my back of the envelope calculation as well. It's quite extraordinary for to think as we invest so much research and investment into the biomedical model that I opened today's discussion with, just how much we can shift by looking at the problem from a different framework. I'm, I'm listening to both of you and thinking, you know, a, a half of the load of, of ill health and, and, um, and, and one-third of deaths that we could be be shifting away from that we could be transforming that is a remarkable thing and you know what a vision if we could bring that transformation about Sharon in, in perhaps what will, will be the final question as we wrap up today I, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on shifts that we're seeing both within Australia and globally in Australia we're moving towards a well-being budget um the, the budget that came down last year was was explicitly framed in terms of well-being, um, and that's a conversation that's ongoing in Australia. Globally, there is a growing conversation about a well-being economy, um, and of course, that's about measuring things differently, not relying on a measure such as, as GDP, but really, it's about reconceptualising what we value and and how we value it. Um, and I guess part of that is is what you're pointing out about the way we value those commercial actors who who do good in the world, you know, who who behave in an ethical way. But I'd really love to hear your thoughts on whether you think these shifts towards a well-being economy are part of the transformation that we need. How much hope do you place in that emerging conversation around well-being? Yeah, look, I, I think it's so important that the discussion is happening around the well-being economy. Whether it gets called the well-being economy, who who knows whether that's the right frame for it. But I think what's really important is it's it's a conversation that questions, in a very constructive way, a conversation that questions the dominant growth model. And... That's, you know, that's fundamentally what we're talking about. What we're saying, what the wellbeing economy is saying is it cannot be about unfettered economic growth. It can't be about growth as the end goal. It's about what's the purpose of economic growth and do we need more economic growth or not to achieve what? And by positioning wellbeing as the purpose that we're striving towards, I think, is a marvellous, marvellous and very important um, uh, alternative that's being posed. Like I say, whether that as a frame uh, has traction, I think it's still relatively early days. It's so exciting that Australia is taking this up, possibly taking this up. We've certainly got it here where I am in Canberra in the ACT, across the ACT government and of course, in other high income countries around the world. I'm delighted that in the, uh, Anna Greta, you mentioned, we have the Planetary Health Equity Hothouse. 
and we have uh, Catherine Trebek, uh, who was uh, one of the co-founders of the, the Global Wellbeing uh, Alliance. She's our thinker in residence for this year. Um, so we'll be having lots of, of these discussions. Um, but I think fundamentally, questions about growth, is it over, economic growth, is it over, does it, should there be, is, are we post-growth, green growth, all highly, highly contested issues and discussions, um, but it's for what purpose is the economy, uh, and it should be, of course, in a very normative way. I think it should be about well-being, social equity, um, but there are so many interests at play that uh, I don't think that's a given at all, uh, absolutely. Um, so lots of discussions uh, and strategizing and very, very sophisticated tactics going to be needed to shift our dominant 21st century capitalistic system. Sharon Friel, it has been such a great conversation today and I really hope we come back to talk about the commercial determinants of health more over the course of this year uh, and into the future. It's such an extraordinarily important work. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's just great to talk with both of you as always. Sharon, that was such an extraordinary conversation with Sharon Friel. It's always amazing to have her on uh, the pod. She's one of my favourite thinkers and it's been such a pleasure working alongside her and learning from her here at ANU. The This model of the commercial determinants of health I think is so important in the conversations that I'm part of, thinking about how we can influence life expectancy, how we can think about people's quality of life. The social determinants of health do drive so much of the chronic non-communicable disease, some of the infectious diseases, so many of the things that many of us will contend with in our life. But the thing I particularly liked about this commercial determinants of health framework is that it really highlights that power inequity, the power inequity of a worker who's contending with particular employment relationships, of the, the power of the financialization, the sorts of things that we might be able to afford and the sorts of things we might be able to access in our life. The power often doesn't lie with the consumer. The power lies really with that commercial uh, organization. And I think really thinking about the consequences of the behavior of some of our commercial organizations has extraordinary power to improve the health and well-being of our society. But what were your thoughts? Oh, like you, Anna Greta, I always love talking with, with Sharon Friel and feel as though I've learned so much with, with every conversation. And this work she's done around the com commercial determinants of health is just so incredibly important. And I, I agree with you entirely. I, I think this brings another perspective and a different emphasis to what we already know is an enormous challenge. And it also brings us, I think, some ways of thinking differently about the solutions. Um, the social determinants of the social determinants of health has been such an incredibly important conversation um, in shifting the way we think about not just health issues, but about human rights issues and about social justice and social equity issues broadly. It doesn't always give us all of the solutions, and there can be a tendency when we think about the social determinants of health to fo focus very much on the individual and on individual choices. But as you say, often individuals don't have the power to make the choices that they may wish to um, or the, the kinds of choices that would make 
really significant impacts um, for their health and for the health of their families and their communities. Um, and I, I just give one example from the research that we're doing where we've had um, you know, children involved in our research who have very severe allergies um, and so are not able to eat perhaps nuts or egg. One of the things that we hear from their parents is how expensive it is to find the alternatives, the healthy alternatives for children to be able to eat safely. One of the affordable alternatives for children to be able to eat safely are packets of chips. Now, parents are giving their children chips as their lunch, not because they think they're good choices, but because they need to keep them safe when they've got allergies and because they know those foods, as unhealthy as they are, will keep them safe. So that's not a choice. <laughs> that's a non-choice that's shaped by the nature of power and it's shaped by the nature of 21st century capitalism and all that comes with that. As so much about our everyday lives, as Sharon pointed out, is, is financialized. And I think that comment that Sharon made about the financialization of everyday life is just so important. Um, and so we need to think about the role of commercial actors and how we can bring about regulation to shift the balance of power, to support people to make different kinds of choices. Um, and and Anna Greta, to, to deal with some of those horrifying figures that you and Sharon gave around ill health and preventable death. So the contrast to this financialization system, the system where we see entrenched inequity and real, really significant power discrepancies for the individuals in their life who are up against corporate power. The, the challenge to that is a system that values caring, Sharon. I don't know whether we've mentioned that for this episode, but if we did have a system that valued care at its centre, valuing caring for people and for place, if we could contend with these structural inequities that really do drive a tremendous amount of the ill health and suffering that we see in our community, just how healthy could we be? And so perhaps that's a good spot to leave today's conversation, is asking our listeners just to consider the role of some of these social and commercial and environmental elements in our health and well-being. The places that we live, the work that we do, the way in which our relationships are fostered or not, the way in which the commercial system, the financial system, the taxation systems work toward improving or working against our health and well-being, and the tremendous importance of the environment around us. These are variables in which our, our policy framework can particularly control, and they are tremendously important for health and well-being. Uh, and so it is a really interesting question to ask, just how well could we be? Yes, Anna Greta, if we put care at the centre and we genuinely value it, the solutions start to look not just different, but very possible. And so I think that is a note of optimism on which we should end um, what has been a, a rather confronting conversation at times, but there is a way forward. Listeners, this podcast, as our regular listeners know, is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've referred to in the show notes. Um, and I really do encourage you to, to take a look at those articles in The Lancet. They are really wonderful food for thought. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and to keep up to date with future episodes. There is a lot going on this year, so please do uh, stay in touch with the conversations that we're having here on the pod. 
And if you would like, please do lead us, leave us a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the conversations that we're having. Please do reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. So with that, we will say from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. And from me, I'm Greta Hunter. See you next week. 